The following content is provided under a Creative Commons license. Your support will help MIT OpenCourseWare continue to offer high-quality educational resources for free. To make a donation or view additional materials from hundreds of MIT courses, visit MIT OpenCourseWare at ocw.mit.edu. We introduced the data last time. These were some macroeconomic variables. Um, that can be used for, you know, forecasting the economy uh, in terms of growth uh, and factors such as uh, inflation or unemployment. Um, the, uh, uh, the case note goes through analyzing just three of these economic time series, uh, the unemployment rate, the federal funds rate, and a measure of the CPI, or Consumer Price Index. Um, when uh, Let's see, when one fits uh, a vector autoregression model to this data, um, it turns out that the roots of the characteristic polynomial are 1.002, then 0.9863. And you recall when our discussion of vector autoregressive models, there's a characteristic equation, sort of in matrix form, the determinants just like the univariate autoregressive case. And uh, in order for the process to be invertible, uh, the, basically we need to have the roots of the characteristic polynomial be, uh, let's see, the roots of the characteristic polynomial need to be uh, less than one in magnitude. In, in this uh, implementation of the vector autoregression model, the characteristic roots are the inverses of the characteristic roots that we've been discussing. So anyway, this particular uh, fit of the vector autoregression model suggests that the, uh, the process is non-stationary. And so one should be considering, uh, one should be considering different series to model this as a stationary time series. But in terms of in interpreting the regression model, one can see, well, let's see, well, let's see, okay, to accommodate the uh, non-stationarity, we can take differences of all the series and fit the vector autoregression to the difference series. So one way of eliminating any non-stationarity in time series models, basically eliminate the random walk aspect of the process is to, is to be modeling first differences. And so uh, doing that with this series, let's see, here's just a graph of the time series uh, properties of the difference series. Um, so with our original series, we take differences and eliminate the missing values in this uh, R code. And this autocorrelation function shows us basically the uh, correlations and autocorrelations of individual series and the cross correlations across the different series. So along the diagonals are the autocorrelation function. And one can see that, well, every series is correlation one with itself. Uh, but then at the first lag, uh, positive for the Fed funds and the CPI measure. Um, and there's also some cross-correlations that 
are uh, strong. And whether or not a correlation is strong or not depends upon how much uncertainty there is in our estimate of the correlation. And these dashed lines here correspond to uh, plus or minus two standard deviations of the correlation coefficient when the correlation coefficient is, is equal to zero. Um, so anything, any correlations that sort of go above those, go beyond those bounds uh, is statistically significant. The uh, partial autocorrelation function is graphed here. And uh, let's see, our time series problem set goes through just some discussion of the partial autocorrelation coefficients and the interpretation of those. The partial autocorrelation coefficients um, are the uh, correlation between uh, one variable and the lag of another after explaining for all lower degree lags. So it's like the incremental uh, correlation of a variable with a lag term that, uh, that exists. And so if we are actually fitting regression models where we include extra lags of a given variable, that partial autocorrelation coefficient is essentially the correlation uh, associated with the addition of the final lagged variable. So here we can see that each of these series is quite strongly correlated with itself, but there are also some cross-correlations with like the unemployment rate and the Fed funds rate. Uh, basically, uh, the Fed funds rate tends to go down when the unemployment rate goes up. And so this data is indicating uh, the association between these macroeconomic variables and the evidence of, of that behavior. In terms of modeling the actual structural relationships between these, we need many, well, several, you know, up to about 10 or 12 variables more than these three. And then uh, one can sort of have a better understanding of uh, the drivers of various macroeconomic features. But this sort of illustrates the use of these methods in this, with this reduced variable case. Um, let me also go down here and just comment on the unemployment rate, let's see, or the Fed funds rate. Okay, the Fed, let me, okay. Uh, when fitting these vector autoregression models with uh, the packages that exist in R, um, they give us output which provides the specification of each of the uh, autoregressive models for the different dependent variables, the different series of the, uh, of the process. And so um, here is the case of the regression model for Fed funds as a function of unemployment rate uh, lagged, Fed funds rate lagged, and uh, CPI lagged, and these are all on the difference scale. When you're looking at these results, what's important is basically how strong the signal-to-noise ratio is for estimating these uh, autoregressive parameters, vector autoregressive parameters. And so with the Fed funds, you can look at the t-values, um, and t-values that are larger than 2 are certainly you know, quite significant. And you can see that uh, basically when the unemployment rate coefficient is a negative 0.71, 
So if the unemployment rate goes up, we expect to see the Fed rate going down in the next month. And okay, the Fed funds rate for the uh, lag one is, has a T-value of 7.97. So, and these are now models on the differences. So if the Fed funds rate was increased last month or last quarter, it's likely to be increased again. And that's uh, partly uh, a factor of you know, how slow the economy is in reacting to changes and how the Fed doesn't want to you know, shock the economy with uh, large changes in their policy rates. <coughs> Let's see, um, another uh, thing to notice here is that there's actually a negative uh, coefficient on the lag two Fed funds uh, term of negative 0.17. And uh, in, term, in interpreting these kinds of models, I think it's helpful just to, you know, to think of, okay, if we have Fed funds sub T, you know, that's equal to minus 0.71 times the unemployment rate sub T minus 1. And then we have plus 0.37 times the Fed funds of t minus 1, this is a delta, and then minus 0.18, is it? Yeah. Times the Fed funds, so t minus 2. In interpreting these coefficients, yeah, notice that these two terms correspond to 0.19 times the Fed funds change one lag ago, plus 0.18 times the change in that rate. So when you see multiple lags coming into play in these models, uh, it, the interpretation of them can be uh, made by considering different sort of transformations, essentially, of the underlying variables. And so this, you know, in this form, you can see that Okay, the Fed funds tends to be uh, to change the way it changed the previous month, but it also may change depending on the, the, the double change the previous month. So there's a degree of acceleration in the Fed funds that is being captured here. So um, the interpretation of these models, you know, sometimes requires some care. Um, and uh, but this kind of analysis is, uh, I find it often quite useful. All right, okay. So let's push on to the next topic. Okay, so today's topic's uh, going to begin with discussion of co-integration. Um, Co-integration is a major topic in time series analysis, which is dealing with the analysis of non-stationary time series. And in the previous uh, discussion, we addressed non-stationarity of series by taking first differences to eliminate that non-stationarity. Or the and uh, uh, but we we may be losing some information with that differencing. And co-integration provides a framework within which uh, we characterize all available information for statistical modeling in a very systematic way. So let's introduce 
the context within which cointegration is relevant. It's relevant when we have a stochastic process, a multivariate stochastic process, which is integrated of some order, d. And uh, to be integrated of order d means that if we take the dth difference, then that dth difference is stationary. Um, so, uh, and if you are, uh, if you look at a time series and you plot that over time, well, okay, a stationary time series we know should be something that is basically has a constant mean over time. There's some steady mean which uh, that has, and the variability is also constant. With um, some other time series, it might increase linearly over time. And a series that increases linearly over time, well, if you take first differences, that tends to take out that linear trend. And if there are higher order differencing is required, then that means that there's some curvature uh, quadratic, say, that may be, exist in the data that is being taken out. So, um, so this differencing is required to uh, result in, in stationarity. If, um, if the process does have a vector autoregressive representation in spite of its non-stationarity, then it can be represented by a polynomial lag of the x's is equal to white noise epsilon. And the polynomial phi of L is going to have a factor terminare of 1 minus L, basically the first difference to the d power. So if, if taking these, uh, the dth order difference reduces it to stationarity, then um, we uh, can express this vector autoregression in, in this way. So the phi star of L basically represents the stationary vector autoregressive process on the dth difference series. Now, as it says here, the, the, every, each of the component series may be non-stationary and integrated, say, of order 1. But the process itself may not be jointly integrated. And in that it may be that there are linear combinations of our multivariate series which are stationary. And so um, these linear combinations um, basically represent sort of the, the stationary features of the process. And those features can be apparent without looking at differences. So in, in a sense, if you just focused on differences of these non-stationary multivariate series, uh, you would be losing out on the information of the stationary structure of contemporaneous components of, of the multivariate series. And so cointegration 
deals with this situation where some linear combinations of the multivariate series, in fact, are stationary. So how, is, how do we represent that mathematically? Well, we say that this multivariate time series process is co-integrated if there exists an m vector beta such that defining linear uh, weights on the x's and beta prime xt is a stationary process. The co-integration vector beta can be scaled arbitrarily, so um, it's common practice uh, if one has an interest, some primary interest perhaps in the first component series of the process to, to set that equal to 1. Um, and uh, the expression basically says that our time t value of the first series is related in a stationary way to a linear combination of the other m minus 1 series. And this is a long-run equilibrium type relationship. Okay, how does, how does this arise? Well, it arises in many, many ways in economics and finance. Um, I mean, term structure of interest rates, purchase power mm -hmm. parity. Um, the, uh, I mean, okay, in the term structure of interest rates, um, basically, you know, the differences between yields on interest rates over different maturities, those differences might be stationary. The overall level of interest, level of interest might not be stationary, but the spreads ought to be stationary. Um, the purchase power parity in foreign exchange, um, if you look at uh, basically the value of uh, currencies for different countries, um, basically different countries ought to be able to purchase the same goods um, for roughly the same price. And so if there are disparities in currency values, uh, purchase power parity suggests that uh, things will revert back to some norm where everybody is paying, on average, over time, the same amount for different goods. Otherwise, uh, you know, there would be arbitrage would exist. Um, OK, money demand, covered interest rate parity, law of one price, spot and futures. Let me show you another example that uh, will be in the case study for this chapter. OK. All right. Uh, view. Full screen. OK. Um, let's think about energy futures. In fact, uh, next Tuesday's talk from Morgan Stanley is going to be an expert in commodity uh, futures and options. Um, and that should be very interesting. Anyway, um, here I'm looking at uh, energy futures uh, from, the, from the Energy Information Administration, actually for this course, trying to get data that's freely available and distributed is, uh, uh, is, is one of the uh, things we do. And so this data is actually available from the Energy Information Administration of the government, which is now open, so I guess it'll be updated over time. Uh, but uh, 
basically these energy futures are traded on the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. And uh, basically uh, CL is crude, light, uh, West Texas uh, Intermediate Crude, light crude, um, which we have here a time series from 2006 to 2000 uh, till basically yesterday. And you can see how it uh, started the period around $60 and then went up to close to 140 and then it dropped down to around 40 and then it's been hovering around 100 lately. Uh, the second series here is uh, gasoline, RBOB uh, gasoline. I always have to uh, look this up. This is uh, reformulated uh, blend stock for oxygenated blending. Uh, Gasoline. Anyway, this futures on this product are traded at the CME as well, and then heating oil. Oh. And what's happening with uh, with these data is that we have basically a refinery, which um, processes crude oil. as an input, and it basically refines it, distills it, and generates outputs, which include heating oil, gasoline, and various other things like jet fuel and, uh, and others. Um, so if we're looking at uh, the prices, the futures prices of, say, gasoline and heating oil, relating those to crude oil, well, certainly the cost of producing these products should depend on the cost of the input. So uh, I've got in the next plot a translation of these futures contracts into the, their price per barrel. Uh, turns out crude is quoted in dollars per barrel, and the gasoline and heating oil are in uh, cents per gallon. So one multiplies, uh, there are 42 gallons in a barrel, so you multiply those previous years by 42, and this shows the plot of the prices of the futures where we're looking at essentially the same units of, of uh, output relative to input. And what's evident here is that, well, the futures for gasoline, the blue is consistently above the green, the input, and same for heating oil. Um, and those vary depending on which, which is greater. So if we look at uh, the difference between, say, the price of uh, the heating oil future and the crude oil future, what, it, what does that represent? Well, that's the spread in value of the output minus the input. Right. The cost of running the refinery. Okay. So, yeah, okay. So let's, so cost of refining. So um, let's look at, say, heating oil minus CL and say, this RBOB minus CL. So it's cost of refining. What, what, else, uh, what else could be a factor here? 
supply and demand characteristics? Definitely. Yeah, supply and demand. I mean, if one product's demanded a lot more than another. Uh, so supply and demand. Anything else? Well, maybe for the outputs, if you were to find the difference between the outputs, it would be something cyclical. For example, in the winter, right. heating oil is going to get a lot more valuable as gasoline. As people drive less, and people demand more for heating homes. Absolutely, yeah. That, that's a very significant factor um, with these. There are seasonal effects that drive supply and demand. And uh, so, you know, we can sort of put seasonal effects in there sort of as affecting supply and demand. But certainly you might expect to see seasonal structure here. Anything else? Put on your trader's hat. Profit, yes. The, the refinery needs to make some profit. <laughs> so, you know, there has to be some level of profit that's acceptable and appropriate. So, um, so we have all these things driving basically these differences. Let's just take a look at those differences. These are actually called the crack <coughs> spreads. Um, cracking in the business of refining is basically the breaking down of oil into you know, components, products. And uh, the, uh, on the top is the gasoline crack spread, and the bottom is the heating oil. Uh, crack spread. And one can see that as time series, these actually look stationary. I mean, you know, there certainly doesn't appear to be a linear trend up. Um, but uh, there are, of course, many factors that could affect this. Okay, so, so with that as motivation, how, how would we uh, model such, such series? So let's go back to our lecture here. Okay. Okay. This is going to be a very technical discussion, but um, it's uh, at the end of the day, I think, fairly straightforward. And the objective, actually, of this lecture is to provide an introduction to the notation here, which should make it uh, seem like it's a very straightforward derivation process of, of these models. So. Let's begin with just a recap of the vector autoregressive model of order p. Okay, this is the extension of the univariate case where we have a vector c of constants, m constants, and matrices phi1 to phi p corresponding to basically how the autoregression of one series depends on all the other series. And then there's multivariate white noise eta t, which has mean zero and some covariant structure in it. And the stationarity, uh, if the series were stationary, then the determinant of this uh, matrix polynomial uh, would have roots outside the unit circle for complex C. And uh, if it's not stationary, then some of those roots uh, will be on the unit circle or, or beyond. So let's actually go to that non-stationary case and s suppose that the process is integrated of order one. 
So if we were to take first differences, we would have stationarity. Well, the derivation of uh, the model proceeds by converting the original vector autoregressive equation into an equation that's mostly relating to differences, but with also some extra terms. So let's begin the process by just subtracting the lagged value of the multivariate vector from, each, uh, from the original series. So we subtract xt minus 1 from both sides, and we get delta xt is equal to c plus v1 minus im xt minus 1 plus the rest. So that's a very simple step. We're just subtracting the lagged multivariate series from both sides. Okay. Now, what we want to do is convert the second term in the middle line into a difference term. So what, what do we do? Well, we can subtract and add phi 1 minus im times xt minus 2. And if we do that, subtract and add that, we then get that delta xt is c plus a multiple of delta xt minus 1 plus this multiple of xt minus 2. So we've basically reduced the equations to differences in the first two terms, or in the current uh, series and the lagged. But then we have the original series for lags t minus 2. We can continue this process with the third. And then at the end of the day, we end up getting this equation for the difference of the series is equal to a constant plus a matrix multiple of the first difference multi multivariate series plus another matrix times the second difference all the way down to the pth difference, and, or the p minus first difference. But at the end, we're left with terms at p lags that have no differences in them. So we've been able to represent this series as an autoregressive function of differences, but there's also a term on the undifferenced series at the end that's left over. And <coughs> This representation, uh, or this argument, can actually proceed by eliminating differences in the reverse way, starting with the p minus, or the pth lag, and going up. And one then can represent this as delta xd is c plus some matrix times just the lagged series, plus various matrices times the differences, going back uh, p minus 1 lags. And so at the end of the day, this model basically for delta xt is a constant plus a matrix times the previous lagged series, or the first lag of the multivariate uh, time series, plus various autoregressive lags of, of the different series. So the formula, the, these notes give you the formulas for those, and they're very easy to verify if you go through, go through them one by one. Um, and when we look at this expression for the model, 
Okay, this expresses the uh, stochastic process model for the difference series. This difference series is stationary. Okay, we've eliminated the non-stationarity in the process. So that means the right-hand side has to be stationary as well. And uh, so, well, the terms which are matrix multiples of lags of the difference series, those are going to be stationary because we're just taking lags of a stationary time, multivariate time series, the difference series. But this pi xt term has to be stationary as well. So this pi xt contains the co-integrating terms and fitting a sort of co-integrated uh, vector autoregression model involves identifying this term pi xt. And given that the original series had unit roots, it has to be the case that pi, the matrix, is singular. So it's basically a transformation of the data that eliminates that unit root in the overall series. So the matrix pi is of reduced rank, and it's either, well, rank zero, in which case there's no co-integrating relationships, or it's, its rank is uh, less than m, and the matrix pi does define the co-integrating relationships. Now these co-integrating relationships are the relationships in the process that are stationary. And so it's, it's basically there's a lot of information in that multivariate series with contemporaneous values of the series. You know, there is stationary structure at every single time point, which uh, is, is, can be the target of the modeling. So this matrix pi is of rank r less than m, and so it can be expressed as basically alpha beta prime, where these matrices are of, of rank r, alpha and beta, and the columns of beta define linear independent vectors which co-integrate x, and the decomposition of pi isn't unique. You can basically, uh, for any invertible r by r matrix, g define another set of co-integrating relationships. So, you know, in the linear algebra structure of these problems, there's basically an r-dimensional space where the process is stationary, and how you define you know, the coordinate system in that space is, is up to you, or uh, you know, subject to choice, some choice. So how do we estimate these models? Well, a uh, rather nice result of uh, Sims, Stock, and Watson. Actually, Sims, Christopher Sims, he, he got the Nobel Prize a few years ago for his work in econometrics. And uh, so you know, this is, uh, uh, you know, rather significant work uh, that, that he did. Um, anyway, he, together with Stock and Watson, prove that if you're estimating a vector autoregression model, then the least squares estimator of the original model is basically sufficient to do an analysis of this uh, 
co-integrated uh, vector autoregressive process. The parameter estimates from just fitting the vector autoregression are consistent for the underlying parameters. And they have asymptotic distributions that are identical to those of maximum likelihood estimators. And so, uh, you know, what, what ends up happening is the least squares estimates of the vector autoregressive parameters lead to an estimation of the pi matrix and the uh, pi matrix is basically estimated, or the, the constraints on the pi matrix, which are basically pi is of reduced rank, those will hold asymptotically. So let's just go back to the equation before and just see if that looks familiar here. Okay. So, so what that work says is that if we basically fit the linear regression model while re regressing the difference series on the lag of the series plus lags of differences, the least squares estimates of these underlying parameters will give us asymptotically efficient estimates of this overall process. So we don't need to use any new tools to, to specify these models. Um, all right. Okay, there's, there's an advanced literature on estimation methods for these models. Um, Johansson um, does describe a maximum likelihood estimation when uh, the uh, innovation terms are normally distributed and uh, that methodology applies sort of reduced rank regression methodology and yields uh, tests for what the rank is of the co-integrating relationships. And these methods are implemented in our packages. Um, and uh, let's see. Let me just go back now to the uh, well, let's see. OK. The, um, the case study on, on the crack spread data um, actually goes through sort of testing for non-stationarity in these underlying series. And uh, actually, why don't I just show you that? Let's go back here. Okay. Um, if you can see this, uh, but for the crack spread data, uh, looking at the crude oil futures, basically the crude oil futures can be evaluated to see if it's non-stationary. And there's this augmented Dickey-Fuller test for non-stationarity. And it has a, it basically has a null hypothesis that the model or the series is, is non-stationary and has a unit root versus the alternative that it doesn't. And so 
Testing that null hypothesis that it's non-stationary yields a p-value of 0.164 for CLC1, basically the first, uh, the nearest contract, near-month contract of the futures for uh, light crude. And so the data suggests that crude has a distribution that's non-stationary, integrated order one. Um, and the, uh, let's see, HOC1 also basically has a p test for p-value for non-stationarity uh, of 0.3265. So we can't reject non-stationarity or a unit root in those series with these test statistics. So in analyzing the data, this suggests that um, you know, we basically need to accommodate that non-stationarity when we, when we specify the models. And um, let me just see if there's some results here. Okay. Let me go up here. Oops. Use the mouse here. Okay, um, for this series, actually, there's uh, the case notes will go through actually conducting this Johansson procedure for testing for the rank of the co-integrated process, and that test basically test has different test statistics for testing whether the rank is zero, one, less than or equal to one, or less than or equal to two, and one can see that there's marginal. Basically, the test statistic is almost significant. Uh, at the 10% level for the overall series. Um, it's not significant with, uh, for the rank being less than or equal to one. And so uh, these results, uh, it doesn't suggest there's strong non-stationarity, but uh, certainly with uh, that non-stationarity is, is no, no more than rank one for the series. And the eigenvector corresponding to the stationary relationship is given by these coefficients of one on the uh, crude oil future, 1.3 on the RBOB, and minus 1.7 on the heating oil. So, uh, so what this suggests is that um, you know, there's considerable variability in these energy futures contracts uh, what appears to be stationary is some linear combination of crude plus gasoline minus heating oil. And in, in terms of what, why is that, why, why does it combine that way? Well, you know, there are all kinds of factors that we went through, cost of refining, supply and demand, seasonality, which affect things. And so um, when analyzed, sort of ignoring seasonality, these would be uh, 
the linear combinations that appear to be stationary over time. Yeah. Excuse me, why did you choose to use the futures price as opposed to the spot, and how did you kind of combine the data? Um, actual okay, I, I chose this because um, if uh, refiners are wanting to hedge their risks, then they would go to the futures market to hedge those. And so working with these data, one can then you know, consider problems of, of hedging sort of refinery production uh, risks. And uh, so that, that's why we looked at that. Okay, well, uh, the Energy Information Administration provides historical data which gives the sort of the first month, the second month, the third month available for each of, the, of these contracts. And so I just arbitrarily, well, not arbitrarily, I chose the first month contract for each of these futures. Uh, those ten are the most liquid. Um, depending on what one is hedging, one would use perhaps longer periods uh, for those. But um, there's, uh, you know, some very nice uh, finance problems dealing with hedging, hedging these kinds of risks, and as well as trading these kinds of risks. I mean, traders can uh, try to exploit uh, short-term movements in these. Okay. Um. Okay. All right, anyway, I'll let you look through these, uh, the case note later. And it, it does provide some detail, basically, on the coefficient estimates. And uh, one can basically get a handle on how these things are being specified. All right, so let's go back. OK, the next topic. Uh, I want to cover is uh, linear state space models. Um, it turns out that many of these economic uh, or, or these time series models appropriate in economics and finance can be expressed as a linear state space model. I'm going to introduce the general notation first and then provide illustrations of this general notation with a number of different examples. Uh, so uh, the formulation is we have basically an observation vector at time t, yt. This is our multivariate time series that we're modeling. Now I've chosen it to be k-dimensional for the uh, observations. There's an underlying state vector that's of m dimensions, which basically characterizes the, uh, the state of the process at time t. There's an observation error vector at time t, epsilon t, so it's k by 1 as well, corresponding to y. And there's a state transition innovation error vector, which is um, n by 1, which um, which is actually can be different from m, the, uh, the dimension of the state vector. So we have, in the state space specification, we're going to specify two equations, one for how the states evolve over time, and another for how 
the observations or measurements evolve depending on the underlying states. So let's first focus on a state equation which describes how the state progresses from the state at time t to the state at time t plus 1. Because this is a linear state space model, basically the state at t plus 1 is going to be some linear function of the states at time t plus some noise. And that noise is given by eta t being independent identity distributed white noise, or normally distributed, uh, uh, with some covariance matrix qt, positive definite, and rt is some linear transformation of those which characterize the uncertainty in the particular states. So there's a great deal of flexibility here in how things depend on each other. And uh, right now, it will appear, I don't know, just like a lot of notation, but as we see it in different cases, you'll see how, how these terms come into play, and they're, they're very uh, straightforward. So we're considering simple linear transformations of the states plus noise. And then the observation equation, or measurement equation, is a linear transformation of the underlying states plus noise. So the matrix ZT is the observation coefficients matrix. And the noise, or innovations, epsilon t, are, well, assume independent identically distributed normal, multivariate normal, or invariables of some covariance matrix HT. Uh, and you know, to be fully general, you know, the subscript T means the, the covariance can depend on time T. Um, it doesn't have to, but it can. Uh, these two equations can be written together in a joint equation where we see that the underlying state at time T S gets transformed with T sub T to the state at t plus 1 plus residual uh, innovation term. And the observation equation yt is ztst plus that. So we're representing how the states evolve over time and how the observations depend on the underlying states in this joint equation. And the structure of basically this sort of linear function of states plus error, the error term ut here is normally distributed with covariance matrix omega, which has this structure. It's a sort of block diagonal. We have the covariance of the epsilons as the h, and the covariance of rt, eta t as rt, qt, rt transpose. So um, you may recall when we take a covariance matrix of a linear function of random variables, given by a matrix, then it's that linear function R times the covariance matrix times the transpose. So that term comes into play. <coughs> so let's see how a uh, capital asset pricing model with time-varying betas can be represented as a linear state space model. You'll recall we discussed this model um, in a few lectures ago where we have the excess return of a given stock, RT, is a linear function of the excess return of the market portfolio, RMT, plus error. 
what we're going to do now is extend that previous model by adding time dependence t to the regression parameters. The alpha is not a constant. It's going to vary by time. And the beta is also going to vary by time. And how will it vary by time? Well, we're going to assume that the alpha t is a Gaussian random walk. And the beta is also a Gaussian random walk. Okay, with that set up, we have the following expression for the state equation. Okay, the state equation, which is just the unknown parameters, it's the alpha and the beta at given time t. Okay, the state at time t gets adjusted to the state at time t plus 1 by just adding these random walk terms to it. So it's a very simple process. We have the identity times the previous state plus the identity times this vector of these innovations. So st plus 1 is equal to tt, st plus rt, a to t, where this matrix t sub t and r sub t are trivial. They're just the identity. And a to t is, uh, has a covariance matrix, which is just given by qt sigma squared nu sigma squared epsilon. So uh, you know, this is a, it's sort of a complex way, perhaps, of, of representing this model, but it puts this simple model into that linear state space framework. Um, now, the observation equation is given by this expression, defining the ZT matrix as basically the unit element in RMT. So it's basically a row vector, or a row matrix, one row matrix. And epsilon t is, is the white noise process. Now, putting these equations together, we basically have the equation for the state transition and the observation equation together. We have this form for that. All right. So now let's consider a second case of uh, linear regression models where we have a time-varying beta. In a way, this case we just looked at is a, a simple case of that. But let's look at a more general case where we have uh, p-independent variables, which could be time-varying. So we have a regression model almost as we've considered it previously. yt is equal to xt transpose beta t plus epsilon t. The difference now is our regression coefficients beta are allowed to change over time. And uh, how do they change over time? Well, we're going to assume that those also follow independent random walks with variances of the random walks that may depend on the component. So the joint state space equation here is given by basically the identity times st plus a to t. That's basically the random walk process for the underlying uh, regression parameters. And yt is equal to xt time transpose times 
the same regression parameters plus the observation error. I guess you know, needless to say, if, if we consider the special case where the random walk process is degenerate and they're basically steps of size zero, then uh, we get the normal linear regression model coming out of this. Um, if we were to be specifying the sort of linear state space implementation of this model and consider successive estimates of the model parameters over time, then these equations would give us sort of recursive estimates for updating regressions with, uh, as we add additional values to the data, additional observations to the data. Okay, let's look at autoregressive models of order P. The uh, autoregressive model of order P for a univariate time series. You know, it has the setup given here. Basically, it's a polynomial lag of the response variable yt is equal to the innovation epsilon t. And uh, we can define the state vector to be equal to the vector of p values, p successive values of the process. And so we basically get a uh, sort of a combination here of the observation equation and state equation joining where basically one of the states is, uh, is, is or the, one of the states is actually equal to the observation. And um, basically with this definition for the state of the vector at the next that is equal to this linear transformation of the lag state vector plus that innovation term. So the, no the notation here you know, shows the structure for how this uh, linear state space model is evolving. Basically, the observation equation is the linear combination of the phi multiples of lags of the values plus the residual. And the previous lags of the states are just simply the identities times those values shifted. So it's, it's a very simple structure for the autoregressive process as a linear state space model. We have, uh, as I was just saying, you know, for the transition matrix T sub T, this matrix, and uh, the observation equation is essentially picking out the first element of the state vector, which has no measurement error. So that sort of simplifies that. Okay. The uh, moving average model of order Q can also be expressed as a linear state space model. Um, this, uh, remember the moving average model is one where our response variable Y 
is simply some linear combination of innovations, Q past innovations. And uh, this state vector, <coughs> if we consider the state vector just being the innovations, basically Q lags of the innovations, then the transition of those underlying states is given by this expression here. And we have a state equation, an observation equation, which has these forms for these various uh, transition matrices. And for how the sort of innovation terms are uh, related. <coughs> OK. Um, let's see. And the, this, uh, let me just finish up with examples showing that with the autoregressive moving average model. Um, and many years ago, it was actually very difficult to specify the uh, estimation methods for autoregressive moving average models. But uh, the implementation of these models as uh, linear state space models facilitated that greatly. Um, and with the ARMA model, um, the setup basically is you know, a combination of the autoregressive moving average processes. We have an autoregression of the Ys is equal to a moving average of the residuals and or the innovations. And it's convenient in the setup for linear state space models to think of or to define the parameter or the, the dimension m, which is the maximum of p and q plus 1, and think of having basically a possibly m order polynomial lag for each of those two series. And we you know, can basically constrain those values to be 0 if m is greater than p or if m is greater than q. And let's see, Harvey, in a very important work in 93, actually defined a, a, a particular state space representation for this process. Um, and I guess it's important to know that with these linear state space models, and we're dealing with uh, characterizing structure in m-dimensional space, there's a, often some choice in how you represent your underlying states. Uh, you know, you can basically re-parameterize the, the models um, by considering uh, invertible linear transformations of the underlying states. And you can, so uh, let me go back here. All right. Um, okay, in expressing the state equation generally as, you know, T sub T, ST plus RT, A to T, this matrix T sub T and ST but the ST can be replaced by a linear transformation of ST, so long as we multiply the T sub T by the invert of that transformation. So there's flexibility in the choice of our linear state space specification. And so there really are you know, uh, many different uh, equivalent linear state space models for a given process, depending on exactly how you define the states and the underlying transformation matrix T. And the 
the sort of beauty of Harvey's work was coming up with a nice representation for the states where we had very simple forms for the various matrices. And the lecture notes here go through the derivation of that for the armor process. And that uh, this derivation is, I just want to go through the first example, uh, the first case, just to highlight sort of how the argument goes. We basically have this equation, which is the original equation for an ARMA PQ process. And Harvey says, well, define the first or the state at time t to be equal to the observation at time t. If we do that, then how does this equation relate to the uh, basically this this is the state at the next time point t plus one is equal to phi one times the state at time t plus a state at time or a, a second state at time t and a residual innovation a to t. So by choosing the first state to be the observation value at that time. We can then solve for the second state, um, which is given by this expression, just by rewriting our observation, or our, our model equation in terms of S1t, S2t, and eta t. So this S2t is this function of the observations and eta t. So it's a very simple specification of the uh, second state, just what, what is that second state uh, element given this definition of the first one. And one can do this process iteratively, getting rid of the uh, observations and replacing them by underlying states. And at the end of the day, you end up with this very simple form for the transition matrix T. Basically, the T has the autoregressive components as the first column of the T matrix, and this R matrix has this vector of the moving average components. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a very <coughs> nice, uh, you know, way to represent the model. Coming up with it was, you know, something very clever that, that he did. And, but what one can see is that this basic model where you have the states transitioning according to a linear transformation of the previous state plus error and the observation being some function of the current states uh, plus error or not, depending on the formulation, um, is the representation. Now, with all of these models, what is... Uh, a reason why linear state space modeling is, is in fact, uh, effective is that their specification is, is, is fully uh, um, specified with the uh, Kalman filter. Um, so uh, with this formulation of linear state space models, um, the Kalman filter, as a methodology, is the recursive computation of 
the probability density functions for the underlying states at basically t plus 1 given information up to time t, as well as the density of the joint density of the future state and the future observation at t plus 1 given information up to time t. And also just the marginal distribution of the next observation given the information up to time t. So with <coughs> so what I want to do is just go through with you what the what, how the Kalman filter is is implemented and defined. And the implementation of the Kalman filter requires us to have some notation that's a bit involved, but uh, we'll hopefully explain it so that it's, it's very straightforward. There are basically conditional means of the states. S sub t given t is the mean value of the state at time t given the information up to time t. If we condition on t minus 1, then it's the expectation of the state at time t given the information up to t minus 1. So, and then yt, t minus 1 is the expectation of the observation given the information up to t minus 1. There's also conditional covariances and mean squared errors. Okay, all those covariances are determined by omegas. The subscript corresponds to states S or observation uh, Y. And basically, the conditioning set is either information up to time t, t minus 1, or t minus 1 in the second case. And uh, we want to compute basically the covariance matrix <coughs> of the states given whatever the information is, information up to time t, t minus 1. So these covariance matrices are the expectation of the state minus their expectation under the conditioning times the state minus the expectation transpose. That's the definition of that covariance matrix. So the different definitions here correspond to just what, whether we're conditioning on different information. Um, and then the observation innovations or residuals are the difference between an observation yt and its estimate given information up to t minus 1. So the residuals in this process are the innovation residuals, one period ahead. And the Kalman filter consists of four steps. Um, we basically want to first predict the state vector one step ahead. So given the state, our estimate of the state vector at time t minus 1, we want to predict the state vector at time t. And we also want to predict the observation at time t given our estimate of the state vector at time t minus 1. And so at time t minus 1, we can estimate these quantities. Lost it again. Thank you. OK, at t minus 1, we can estimate 
these, we, we can basically predict what the state's going to be and predict what the observation's going to be. And we can estimate how much error there's going to be in those estimates by these covariance matrices. OK, the second step is basically updating these predictions to get our estimate of the state given the observation at time t and to update our uncertainty about that state given this new observation. So we basically, our estimate of the state at time t is an adjustment to our estimate given information up to t minus 1 plus a function of the difference between what we observed and what we predicted. And uh, this GT function matrix is called the filter gain matrix. And it basically, it characterizes how do we adjust our prediction of the underlying state depending on what happened. So that's the filter gain matrix. Um, so, so we actually do gain information with each <coughs> observation about what the new value of the process is. And that information is characterized by this filter gain matrix. You'll notice that the uncertainty in the state at time t, this omega s of t given t, that's equal to the covariance matrix given t minus 1. So it's our beginning level of uncertainty adjusted by a, fa a term that tells us how much information did we get from that new information. So no, notice that there's a, a minus sign there. We're basically reducing our uncertainty about the state given the information uh, in the innovation that we now have observed. OK, then there's a forecasting step which is used to Forecast the state one period forward is simply given by this linear transformation of the previous state. And we can also update our covariance matrix for the next, for future states given the previous state by applying this formula, which is a recursive formula for estimating covariances. So uh, we have forecasting uh, algorithms that are simple linear functions of these estimates. And then finally, uh, one may have a, well, there's a smoothing step, which is characterizing the uh, conditional expectation of underlying states given information in the whole time series. And so ordinarily, with common filters, uh, common filters are applied sequentially over time, where one basically is predicting ahead one step, updating that prediction, predicting ahead another step, updating the, the information on the, on the states. And that overall process is the process of actually computing the likelihood function for these linear state space models. And so the Kalman filter is basically ultimately applied in, uh, for successive forecasting of the process, but also for helping us identify what the underlying 
uh, model parameters are using maximum likelihood methods. And so the likelihood function for the linear uh, state space model is basically the log, or the log likelihood is the log likelihood of the entire data series given the unknown parameters. But that can be expressed as the product of the conditional distributions of each successive observation given the history. And uh, so basically the likelihood of theta is the likelihood of the first observation times the likely density of the second observation given the first times and so forth for the whole series. And so the likelihood function is basically a function of all these terms that we were computing with the Kalman filter. And with the Kalman filter, um, you know, it basically provides all the terms necessary for this estimation. <coughs> if the error terms are normally distributed, then the means and variances of these estimates are, in fact, the, uh, characterizing the exact distributions of the process. Basically, we're taking, if the innovation series are all normal random variables, then the linear state space model, all it's doing is taking linear combinations of normals for the underlying states and for the actual observations. So, and normal distributions are fully characterized by their mean vectors and covariance matrices, and the Kalman filter provides a way to update these uh, distributions for all, all these uh, features of the model, the underlying states as well as the distributions of the observations. So, that's... Uh, a brief introduction to the common filter. Um, so let's finish there. Thank you.